I want to talk to you today about what to do when you encounter a problem that you didn't see coming. You know, sometimes in life, we're just living our life, minding our own business, trying to follow God as best as we can, and out of the blue, we encounter a difficulty or a challenge, some problem that just blindsides us. We didn't see it coming, and we never thought that it would happen to us. Now, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter number 12, I want us to see that we're not the first people to encounter problems unexpectedly. We're studying today about a man named Abraham. He's a well-known Old Testament character. He's the father of our faith, and Genesis chapter 12 is one of the most interesting chapters in all the Bible. It's that chapter where God called Abraham to leave the place where he was, the place that he was very familiar with, and to go out into the unknown, into a place he didn't even know where he was going. God basically said, I'll show it to you on the way. You just follow me one step at a time. Now, let's just begin in chapter 12 in verse number one, because it's interesting. One night last week, I wasn't looking for a sermon or anything like that. A sermon was the farthest thing from my mind. But before I went to bed, I said, I want to just read Genesis chapter 12, because I haven't read it in a while, and it really spoke to me. And so I want us to look at this this morning. Verse 1, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot, that's his nephew, went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, Haran is modern-day Syria. Verse 5, then Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Now, Canaan is what we know as Israel today. And so here was Abraham living in Syria with his family, and God said, I want you to leave your home, and I want you to go to a different place. And so he started out on his journey not knowing where he was going, because we read in Hebrews that, that it says that Abraham went out not knowing exactly where he was going, but God was leading him to Israel, and he got there, and he got situated in the promised land in Canaan. And what God was saying and says in, in the subsequent chapters, Abraham, all this land is yours, not only yours, but to your son Isaac and your grandson Jacob and all your descendants. And so the reason today that the Jewish people live in the nation of Israel is because here God gave it to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people and the father of our faith. So we read those first 12, those first five verses, chapter 12, and we think Abraham was perfectly obedient to God. He did exactly what God told him to do. And we might think that as a result of that, when he got into Canaan, that God sent down some angels and said, Abraham, you did such a good job. And maybe God would come himself and congratulate Abraham and, and bless him for being obedient. Well, God blessed him, but not in the way we would expect. Look at verse number 10, because this is very, very unusual. Now, here's Abraham in Canaan, having been perfectly obedient to God. And here's what verse 10 says. Now, there was a famine in the land. There was no food. I'm sure Abraham was tempted to think, now, God, what is this? You led me here. I left what was known to come to the unknown. And as a result of my obedience, now I'm experiencing a famine. 
And as I read that the other night, I thought, you know what Abraham experienced here is what we experience sometime in our lives. We're trying to be obedient to God as best we can. Nobody's perfect, of course, but we're trying to do what God wants us to do. And instead of a feast, there's a famine. Instead of some kind of a celebration, there's this problem. And we wonder, God, what am I supposed to do now that there's a famine in the land? Now, when I say famine, I'm using that for our purposes metaphorically. For you, it could be the loss of a job. It could be a problem in a relationship. It could be a health issue. It could be a money issue. It could be an emotional issue. Maybe you're struggling with depression or you're struggling with some anxiety and fear. It could be a mental issue. The devil, you have some kind of a, there's a stronghold that Satan has in your mind. Maybe it's a spiritual famine and you feel like, you know what? I read the Bible and it's like black ink on white paper and it doesn't speak to me. I pray and I feel like God's not on the other end of the line. And maybe I even come to a service like this today and everybody's worshiping and praising God and glad to be there. But me, I kind of feel flat, kind of have, kind of feel blah and not really getting anything out of it. And so for you, it's a spiritual family thing. God, what's wrong? I'm trying to obey you. I'm in church today. I'm trying to live my life in a way that would honor you. And yet, God, I'm kind of like Abraham. There's a famine in the land. And so the question is, what do we do when there's a famine in the land in some area of our lives? Now, if you picked up a bulletin coming in, we've printed out several things there. And I want to just show you today some things to do and not to do when there's a famine in your life of any kind. Number one, this is very important. Don't assume that you're out of God's will. Don't assume that you're out of God's will. Now, I don't think Abraham assumed he was out of God's will. He knew that he was in God's will. But many times I think we get in a situation out there in life and we just assume or say to ourselves, well, I guess I must have made a mistake. I thought God wanted me to do this and I did it. And now it's not working out, so I guess I just got out of the will of God. Well, it is true that sometimes we have problems in life because we sinned and got out of the will of God. I think about Jonah in the Old Testament. God called him to go in this direction. He went that direction. And as a result of his disobedience, he had all kinds of problems in his life. So sometimes that happens. But more often than not, in the life of the believer who's trying to go with God, we don't have problems because we're out of the will of God. Sometimes we have problems because we're actually in the will of God. I think about Job in the Old Testament. He was a man, the Bible says, was blameless and he was upright and he served God and he shunned evil and I mean, he loved God with all of his heart and he had all kind of problems in his life that Satan actually brought in to try to get Job to stop loving and trusting God. I think about the disciples in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus came to them one day and he said to those disciples, what I want you to do is get in this boat and sail across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus made them do that. So they got in the boat, and they're sailing along, doing exactly what Christ had told them to do. They got out there, and a terrible storm blew across that Sea of Galilee. If you've ever been on the Sea of Galilee, you know those storms can just come immediately like that. And that's what happened. And the water's coming into the boat, and they thought certainly they would drown. They were scared to death. Now, let me ask you a question. Were they in a storm because they were out of the will of God? No, they were in a storm because they were in the will of God. They were doing what God told them to do. And here Abraham is the exact same way. He did what God told him to do, but he ended up in a famine. It was a test, and he didn't understand what was going on. Now, let me say this about the will of God, because all of us want to be, quote, in the will of God. You may be thinking, now, what do you mean by the will of God? The will of God refers to God's plan for your life. 
what God would have you to do. There's a general will of God, certain things that all of us should do. And then there's a specific will of God that the person that God wants you to marry, the place God wants you to live, the place where God wants you to work. That's God's specific will for your life. We all want to be in the will of God. And I think sometimes it's easy when we're having difficulty out there just to assume, well, I guess I'm out of the will of God. Remember this about the will of God. Unless you have done something God told you not to do, or unless you have failed to do something that God told you to do, either in His Word or through His Spirit, you're not out of the will of God. You can't get out of the will of God that easily. You get out of the will of God. Let me say that again. When you do something God told you not to do. So in the Bible, we read certain things that we're not supposed to do. Well, if we do one of those things, we're out of the will of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you would be out of the will of God for the rest of your life. You can repent and confess and get back in the will of God. So unless you've done something God told you not to do, or maybe God's told you to do something and you haven't done it. God's told you to be baptized. Well, you haven't done it. Well, in that area, you're out of the will of God. God's told you to forgive somebody. You haven't done it. Well, you're out of the will of God. But unless that has happened, you're not out of the will of God. You're in the will of God. And so just because you're in a famine, don't assume that you're out of God's will. Now, the second thing I would say we should do when we, when we get in a famine out there, a dry time in our life, is don't try to change your circumstances. So many times, that's exactly what we do. In fact, that's what Abraham did. Look back in verse number 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and then after that word land, there's a comma in my Bible. And it would be good if the next part of the verse said, and Abraham decided to trust God during the famine and stay in Canaan because that's where God had told him to go. It'd be great if that's how that verse read, but that's not what it says. It says, now, there was a famine in the land, comma, And Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. So Abraham, here he's got this problem. There's a dry time in his life. There's a famine, no food for him. And instead of staying in Canaan and praying about that and saying, now, God, you sent me here. You know I've got to have food. My wife's got to have food. Our family has to have food. Now, God, there's not any food, but you would not have sent us here to die You would have sent us here to live, and so I'm asking you to supernaturally, providentially send us some food. I guarantee you, had Abraham prayed that, God would have sent a manna or a quail or something to eat. But Abraham decided to take matters in his own hands, and he went down to Egypt. Now, the problem with that was God never told him to go to Egypt. God had told him to go to Canaan, but God never told him to go to Egypt. That was Abraham's idea. And when he went down to Egypt, see, he did something that God never told him to do. And he got out of the will of God. But I can understand how he got out of the will of God. He got out of the will of God because he took matters in his own hands. He didn't like his circumstances. We might say it this way. He didn't like his job. He didn't like his surroundings. He didn't like how things were playing out in his life. He didn't like it. And so instead of staying put and trusting God, what did he do? He took marriage into his own hands, and he went down to Egypt to change his circumstances. Now, from Abraham, we learn here that it is not our job to change our circumstances. It is our job to trust God in our circumstances, and if he chooses to change them, fine. If he chooses to leave them as they are, so be it. That's his decision. But when we take matters into our own hands, we make a horrible, horrible mistake. Now, some of you have, would know the name Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott went to Wheaton College back in the, probably the 1950s or so. 
and he had a calling on his life to be a missionary. Well, while he was at Wheaton College, there was a girl there that he became friends with. Her name was Elizabeth, and she also had a calling on her life to be a missionary. And interestingly enough, both Jim and Elizabeth felt that God was calling them to be missionaries to Ecuador. They wanted to go to Ecuador and minister and reach the Alca Indians for Jesus Christ. And so all the way through their time at Wheaton, they talked about that. And while they had a very close friendship, they decided not to get too romantically involved because they, they didn't want to sacrifice what God was calling them to do. And they thought, well, if we get married, maybe we'll, we'll put our focus on each other. And we, we, we just really feel like God wants us to be missionaries. And so there was a time when the two of them were separated. During that time, they wrote a lot of letters back and forth to each other. Their friendship developed, their relationship grew. And there came a time out there where they felt like that God wanted them to get married and they got married. Well, after they got married, they indeed went to Ecuador and they became missionaries along with others. There was a group of them trying to reach the Alca Indians for Christ. Well, one day, Jim and some of the men on that team that he was with, that they were with, they flew into the most remote part of Ecuador trying to reach a people group that had never heard the name of Christ that didn't know anything about God or the Bible, but they went there, very dangerous mission, to try to evangelize that community for Christ, that, that tribal area for Christ. Well, when they got there, the, the people living there looked up and saw these Caucasians, these unfamiliar faces coming to them, and they didn't know what in the world they were. Were they coming to kill them? Were they coming, what were they coming to kidnap their kid, children? What were they coming to do? And so this group of tribal people killed Jim Elliott killed his associates, it was just hard. and he's in his mid to late 20s at this time. Well, after Jim was killed, his wife Elizabeth now is a widow. She's in her mid-20s, and she's not only a widow, but she's the mother of a 10-month-old baby girl. Well, you can put yourself, or try, who can fully, to put yourself in her shoes. What would you do, ladies, if you were 26, 27 years of age, You've got a 10-month-old baby. You're in Ecuador thinking God led you there. Now your husband has been killed. What would you do? Would you come back home? Would you reconnect with your parents? Would you try to start your life over? Well, that would be normal and probably what most people would do. But Elizabeth said, no, God sent me to Ecuador. Not only did he send Jim here, he sent me here, and so I'm going to stay here. Not only did Jim want to reach that people group, so do I. And so amazingly, Elizabeth Elliott spent the next two years of her life not only in Ecuador, but in that dangerous place where her husband had been killed, doing what? Learning the language, speaking to, ministering to, helping, and leading that tribal group to faith in Jesus Christ. The reason she was able to lead them to Christ was they learned that she was the widow of the man they had killed, and instead of her hating them, she loved them, and they thought, what gives? How could you love us? We killed your husband. And it was her unconditional love that softened their hearts and led them to receive Christ. Time goes by, and she felt like she had fulfilled her commitment to God and to the people there in Ecuador, and so she ends up coming back to the United States. She married again later in life, and she thought, well, God's given me a second chance at marriage, and now she was married for maybe six or seven years, and her husband died of cancer. 
Her heart was now twice broken. Time goes by, she married for the third time and had a wonderful marriage for many years, but the last 10 years of her life, and by the way, Elizabeth Elliot didn't die till 2015, so she's been with us until fairly recent times. But the last 10 years of her life, she had dementia. And so here's a a girl and then a lady who loved God with all of her heart. And yet she goes through all these heartbreaking situations. Well, in the mid to latter years of her life, she began to write books. She's probably written about 20 books. If you ever want to read a good devotional book, just Google books by Elizabeth Elliot. And any of them would be wonderful reading for you. And in those books, she has some of what I consider to be the greatest quotes in the history of Christianity. And I want to just read you several of them today. Uh, First of all, here's a great quote. She says, faith, and she's basing this based on the story I just told you what she had been through. Faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. You know, just because we're saved and just because we trust God, that doesn't mean we never ask God why. God, why did you let this? I'm sure she asked God that. God, why did you let my husband be killed? God, my baby doesn't have a father. God, why? And the second husband, God, why? I'm sure she asked that. And she said, that's okay. Faith doesn't eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take those questions. Number, Number two quote, I just love this. She said, don't dig up in doubt what you have planted in faith. You know, sometimes in life we go through something and, and we, 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 we go to God in prayer and in faith we make a commitment and we say, God, with this area in my life, I put it in your hands and I trust you with it. We plant that in faith. We have peace in our heart. Sometimes time will go by and, and, and that comes back to us and something we've originally given to God, we take back. What do we do? We go back and dig up in doubt what we've originally planted in faith. Some of you may be doing that right now. Maybe there's something in your life that you have trusted God with. Maybe your own salvation. You've you've planted that in faith. You've trusted God with that. And the devil's coming along and making you doubt and wondering, question, and you're digging up in doubt what you've originally planted in faith. And she says, don't do that. Keep trusting God. But then this quote, this next quote is so good. And as we think about our passage today, how Abraham, he's in a famine Instead of trusting God and staying put, what did he do? He tried to change his circumstances. He took matters into his own hands. This next quote by Elizabeth Elliot is so good. We put it in your bulletin because I wanted everybody to have it when you leave today. And we're putting it on the screen. And here is the quote. I love this. She said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. I want you to think about that. Let that sink in. Look at that quote. The secret, you say the secret to what? The secret to peace, joy, happiness, contentment, inner ease, tranquility, victory in life, and overcoming life, faith, the secret to it all. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And yet, how many of us can relate to Abraham and we say, God, there have been times in my life when my circumstances, they they went south and there was a famine in my life of some kind. And instead of just staying put and trusting you and seeing what you would do, I took matters into my own hands and I tried to change my circumstance. Elizabeth Elliott says, don't do that because the secret to it all is Christ in us, regardless of our circumstances, not us in a different set of circumstances. Now, you still listen, say amen. What have I said so far? When there's a famine in the land, don't assume you're out of the will of God. 
You very well may not be at it. You may be right in the middle of God's will. It's a test. You don't see it as a test, but it's a test. It's something God has allowed into your life to see how you're going to respond to it. If you are out of God's will, confess the sin, repent of it, and get back in God's will. But don't automatically assume you're out of God's will. No. Number two, don't try to change your circumstances. You stay put. Don't run. Stay, stay with God and see what he's going to do. Now, all of what I've just said is the introduction of this sermon. How do you like that? That's all the introduction. Not in time, but in importance. In time, we're still on the good pace. But I, I say all that I've said today to lead up to this third point that I want to try to drive home in this message. When you are in a famine in your life, now watch this. This is extremely important. Don't miss a wonderful opportunity to go deeper in your relationship with God. Now, all of us in life, when we get in a famine, you know, like I say, we don't like it. We want out of it. We question God, why am I going through this? And we may or may not get those answers on earth. We'll get the answer in heaven. We may or may not get those answers on earth. But one of the things we must remember is when we are going through a dry time, even though we can't see it, we're not thinking it this way, but it's nonetheless true. We have an, an incredible opportunity to go deeper in our relationship with God. Let me ask you this question. As you look back on your life up until this point, no matter how young or old you are, your life up to this point, when have you grown the most? When you were up on the mountain or when you were down in the valley? Well, I guarantee you it's when we're down in the valley. The mountaintops are wonderful. But you don't grow vegetation up on the mountain. You grow vegetation down in the valley where it can receive the proper amount of, of rainwater and these type things. And so that's true in our lives. It's down in the valley that we grow. Say, okay, John, you're saying now, because some of you listening to this and, you're, and, and some of you listening at home today, and you're saying, I'm glad I'm joining this service <laughs> because I can relate to Abraham. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do, and yet I'm in a famine. There's a dry place in my life, and okay, I'm not going to assume I'm out of God's will. I'm not going to try to change my circumstances. But now this thing you're on to now, you're telling me don't miss out on a wonderful opportunity to go deeper in my relationship with God. And the natural question will be, how can I do, how am I supposed to go deeper in my relationship? with God. Well, one of the things is go to church. You're here today. You'd be commended for that. You're in God's house with God's people, singing God's songs and studying God's word. So you've done something incredibly important already today before lunch. But also in the valley, in the dry time, in the famine of life, this is the time to intensify our praying and to intensify our fasting. And that's what I want to talk to you about just for the next few minutes. Prayer and fasting. Now, some of you visiting today, you say, now, I don't understand. I know prayer, but what do you mean by fasting? Well, fasting is when we give up food for a temporary specified amount of time so that we can spend the time that we would have spent eating in prayer seeking God. Now, God knows we can't go without food forever. We have to eat to live. But God also knows that most of us could go a day without food or certainly a meal without food or maybe three days without food or maybe longer than that. And so in the Bible, it's interesting, in the Sermon on the Mount, we read that Jesus assumed that as part of the spiritual disciplines of his followers, that there would be occasional or regular times of prayer and fasting. And I'll tell you how I know that. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this, 
when you pray, and then he told us how to pray. But he didn't say if you pray. He just assumed we would pray. And then he said, when you do a charitable deed, when you give money, and then he told us how to do it. He didn't say if you give, but when, then he told us how to give. In that same passage, Jesus said, when you fast. He didn't say if in your journey of following me, you ever decide to fast. He didn't say if, he said when. Why? He just assumed as part of the Christian's life that there would be times of fasting. And so in the Bible, we read Moses fasted, Elijah fasted, Daniel fasted, Jesus fasted, Paul fasted, the early church fasted, entire nations fasted. Why? So that they could spend the time that they would have spent eating food, seeking God. Now, it's mysterious, this whole idea of fasting. It's mysterious why this is a big deal to God. It's kind of like tithing. God doesn't need our money. He owns everything. But God says, I want 10% of what I've given you. It's an act of worship. And if you'll honor me with your tithe, I'll honor you and your finances. And those of us who tithe know that's true. Well, the same thing's true with fasting. There's something about fasting that honors God. And as a result, there's something about fasting that God honors. I don't fully understand it, but I just know it's true. I know it from the Bible, and I know it from personal experience. We read in the Bible, people did a three-day fast. Some did a 10-day fast. Some did a 21-day fast. Some did a 40-day fast. And so all, sometimes they fasted from all food. Sometimes, like in Daniel's case, he went 10 days. He didn't fast from all food, but he only ate vegetables. Now, some people don't, they just say, I'd rather just fast from everything if I have just eat vegetables for 10 days. But that's all he ate, no meat and nothing that we would call really good. He just ate vegetables for 10 days. Well, and so fasting, whether you fast for a day or a, a meal or whatever, it's something that Jesus assumed would be part of our life. Well, it's interesting. About 10 years ago, we had it on our hearts that it would be a good idea in January here at First Baptist if we would set aside three days for prayer and fasting. Except when we put this little booklet together and when we shared this with the church, it's been at least 10 years ago, I would say, we said what we're going to challenge everybody to do is not a food fast. And here's the reason. There are many people who can't fast from food. You're on medication. Maybe you're diabetic. And it would cause serious issues if you said, I'm not going to eat food for three days or for a day. You have to have food with your medication. So not everybody can do a food fast, but everybody can do a media fast. And so that's what this booklet was. And I, and, and I know we've done this so many years. And to be honest with you, I always like to do this one Sunday in January. And this year, I, I thought about it, and I looked at this booklet, and I thought to myself, I don't know if I want to do that again. I mean, we've done it before. It's not new. You know, every, we all want something new. And then I got thinking, well, you know, breakfast isn't new. Right? I mean, breakfast, is, breakfast has been around for a long time. But I had some this morning. I didn't just get up and say, well, you know, I had breakfast last year, so I'm not going to eat breakfast this year. Breakfast isn't new. Sleep isn't new. When you go to bed every night, you're not looking for something new. You're looking for a pillow in the warm covers, right? I mean, people have been sleeping forever. But just because it's old doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep doing it. In fact, there's some, there's, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. One of the problems in, Christi in Christianity today is that we all want something new. Well, and I'm that way too. Sometimes I want something new. But listen, in all of our hungering for something new, let's don't neglect the things that are old and that God assumes we'll still keep on doing in our lives. And so 
That's why we're doing this today. And so this is a booklet about a media fast. You say, John, why, why a media fast? I can understand why you wouldn't challenge diabetics and people on medication to fast from food, but what's the deal about media? I believe, and I'm going to read you the reasons I believe this, that in our day and time, a media fast may be more important than a food fast. Because remember, in Bible times, they didn't have any media. And so their life revolved around food and the next meal and, and the conversations that they would have with other people. And so the fasting was not just giving up food. It was sacrificing that element so you could talk to God. But in our day, the media is dominating our lives and our minds in, 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 a, in an incredible way. The average American spends eight hours a day working, eight hours a day sleeping, Two hours a day on meals, give or take. If you prepare the meal, it may be longer than that. Prepare it, you eat it, you clean it up three times a day. Let's call that two hours. The average American spends four hours or more, according to most studies, watching television. And the average American spends two and a half hours a day on social media. Now, when you add all that up, it comes up to 24 and a half hours. Now, the problem is there are only 24 hours in the day. So if we're spending 24 and a half hours a day doing this, here's the question. When is anybody praying? Well, and that's why I'm saying, see, if you, for, if you decide and say, you know what? I'm going to do a media fast for one. Maybe you just say one. Maybe you live alone and you just say, man, I'm by myself if I go three days with no TV and no radio, I'm going to go nuts. I'm going to go crazy. Well, God doesn't want you to go crazy, so just do one day. Maybe all you need right now. But if you decide to do one day, two days, or even three days to give up the media, if you're an average American, what would that do? That would free up six and a half hours a day to do what? To listen to God, to read the Bible, to pray. After you've got finished praying, to sit there in silence. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You say, you mean you think I should sit silent before God for six and a half hours a day? I, I'm not saying you should do that every day. I'm not even necessarily saying you should do that any days. I'm saying this, if the average American is spending four hours a day watching TV and two hours a day online, six and a half hours, we would be wise somewhere along the journey to sacrifice those six and a half hours to sit in the presence of God. And that's why we're bringing out this media fast. Now, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do today. I'm not going to ask anybody here to make a commitment that you're going to spend three days in a media fast. And the reason I'm not going to do that, it wouldn't be fair. You haven't had time to think about it. And this is a big deal. That's three days of your life. So I'm not asking you to make that commitment. But what I'm asking everybody here to do, when you leave today in the commons, we have this little booklet. And again, it's not been up. I mean, we updated it two or three times if we found an error in here, but I've not rewritten the booklet. It is what it is. I want to encourage you to sometime before you go to bed tonight. Now, I'm encouraging everybody to do this. Take this booklet and open it up and begin reading on page three and read all the way through page 12. That's all you got to do. Once you get to page 12, there's a three-day prayer guide. If you decide to do this media fast during that, those three days, that prayer guide will help you at that point. But the pages 3 through 12, 
talk about fasting and why we should do it and what we can expect to happen in our lives. For those of you who are watching and listening at home today, you say, well, I'm not there. I don't have the book. You can go to our website, fbp.org, and you will find booklets. This is on there. You can read it online. For those of you who live in other places, and you may be listening to this six months after it's preached, you can go to our other website, peacebybelieving.org. And on that website, you can find this booklet. You can read it on your, read these pages, three through 12, on your phone or on your computer. And when you finish page 12, here's what I'm asking you to do before you go to bed tonight. I'm asking you, after you finish the assigned reading, to close the booklet, to sit it down, God, I heard what John said at church today. I've just read the pages he asked me to read, and I'm asking you, do you want me to do a three-day media fast? And just sit there for 10 minutes and just follow your heart. If you don't feel, you, you feel no leadership of the Holy Spirit to do that, I would say don't do it because he's not leading you to do it. If you get finished that, you say, you know what? I think that's exactly what I need to do. You feel God leading you to do it. Maybe you feel it for one day. Anything's better than nothing. Maybe you feel it for one evening, not even the whole day, but just from six at night to the next morning, no TV. Do whatever God leads you to do. You know, in times in my life that I have felt God leading me to do any type of, of a situation like this, I can say God's always honored it. Not always during the specified three days time period, sometimes during the time period, but maybe a little bit after. As I was thinking about this last night, I jotted this down. Anytime that I've ever done something like this, I've always, here's what I've experienced. And I, if you do this, I would like to get an email or something from you. Maybe you could share with me what you've experienced. But I've always experienced a greater awareness of God's presence. I've always experienced a clearer understanding of God's perspective on my situation. And I've always experienced God's power in my life in a, in a much stronger way. You know, I would say it was probably 20 years ago, maybe 22 or 23 years ago, I don't remember the exact year, that fasting became, I mean, I've always known it was in the Bible and believed in it, but I can remember a, a, a friend of mine named Loretta Brown, and I wish I had time to tell you all about her, but she was a family friend of ours for probably close to 40 years, actually. She used to have Thanksgiving with us, Christmas with us, birthdays with us. Her family lived in Florida and in Buffalo, New York, and she managed a Kmart in East Texas when we lived there, so we got to know her there. She then got transferred down here, managed a, a Kmart in Pearland before our family moved to Pasadena. When we moved down here, she joined First Baptist, and we just reconnected with her. We were together with Loretta. Anytime the family was together, she was, she was part of our family. And I would say 20 21, 22, 23 years ago in there somewhere, Loretta and I were talking. She was like an older sister to me. I always called her Lori Brown. I said, Lori, Lori Brown. That's what her family called her Lori, so I called her that. And I said, Lori, here, and I was telling her what I was going through in my life. And she'd listen, and, and she said, John, let me ask you a question. She said, have you ever thought about fasting? And I don't remember exactly what I said. I probably said, well, you know, I know we're supposed to fast when we're having certain situations, and Maybe I had done a little bit, but not much. And I, I probably hem-hawed around about that. And she, here's what she said to me. She said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. She said, I'm going to fast for you and for the situation that you're going through for the next three days. I'm going to fast for you and pray for you for the next three days. And I remember when she said that, I, here's what I thought. Here's, and it's still hard for me, but I thought, I didn't know 
that I had anybody in my life who loved me enough to fast and give up food for three days. Now, my family would have, other than my immediate family, I didn't think I had anybody in my life that loved me that much. And she said that to me. She said, John, I'm going to fast for you, and I'm going to pray for you for the next three days. And she did. And what did I experience during those three days and in the weeks and months and even the years after that? I'll tell you what I experienced. And Loretta's gone to heaven now. I wish I could call her today. Hey, I was talking about you in church today, but I can't do that. I experienced a greater awareness of God's presence. I experienced a clearer vantage point of his perspective on my situation at that time. And I experienced and have for many years since the power of God on my life in ways I had never experienced before. And so I'm saying to you today, that three-day media fast, you know what? It may not even be for you. It may be for a child, a spouse, a parent, a friend, a situation, for our country, for Chris mentioned Michelle's mother on a ventilator. It it may be for something, not even you at all. But in your heart, you think, you know what? What I'm going to do, I'm going to intensify the way I seek God, knowing that if I will honor him in this area, in my life or in somebody else's life, that God will honor me. And I will have as a result a greater awareness of his presence, a clearer vantage point of his perspective, and a fresh outpouring of his power on my life in ways that I would have in no other way.